Disclaimer. The discussions and personal opinions of the guests do not replace professional advice. It's recommended that you seek your own independent professional mental health or legal support to meet your individual needs. Yeah, it was really tough working in that space. Um, It was a real eye-opener, even into my own life, thinking, well, I'm so uh, lucky to have the life that I have. I can't imagine what how I would feel going through what these individuals have gone through and would I even make it this far? Hello and welcome to Life in the Cyclone podcast. I'm so thrilled to be bringing this next guest to our podcast, Miss Sue Gorkham. She holds full registration as a psychologist and has extensive experience in both the private and public sectors, including work in the educational and forensic setting. She has incredible experience in formalised psychological testing and assessments where she identifies as a Turkish-Australian. She understands the complexities and disparities of growing up in a culturally diverse environment as a first-generation Australian. Even more, Sue is a dear friend of mine who started out our psychologist journey together, and I would consider her a great friend. We now get to work in our private practice setting together at Ethos Psychology. Welcome to the podcast, Sue. Uh, thank you, Rachel. It's good to be here and thanks for having me. You have such a great experience as a psychologist in the work that you've done. Um, I want us to talk about some of that as well as, you know, there's cultural competency, cultural safety that we do with a lot of our clients. I'm really excited about this topic. Um, I think it's a topic that um, a lot of people don't know much of and I think we need to inform a lot of people about it as well, yeah. Why don't we start with maybe share with everyone your experience, the kinds of workplaces and settings you've worked in. It'll be good to know a lot of your work history. Yeah, so um, I've been registered as a psychologist for about nine years now. I started off with um, cognitive assessments and uh, working with children with intellectual disabilities. Um, from there, I went into private practice as well as working in detention centres uh, with refugees. Um, I've also worked in the forensic setting a little bit as well. Um, now I'm uh, continue, continuing my private practice and also working in a very cultural and linguistically diverse uh, school as well. So, yeah. Wow, that is incredible experience. And I'm also going to add in we are very lucky in the private practice setting that you do get to, we, you and I get to work very closely together at Ethos Psychology. So we're quite lucky, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so too. I think it's um, very lucky to have a very supportive Uh, mentor, supervisor, as yourself as well. (laughs) Uh, We always learn from each other. And as we all know, as psychologists in our work, you know, we always have to constantly support each other. My first question is generally around, because, you know, when you're talking about working with uh, culturally and linguistically diverse clients, can you share with us what your experience is, is like working with that kind of client cohort? Yeah, um, I think... Being in Australia, we're so lucky to have a large population of people who are born in different countries, who speak uh, different languages and um, 
you know, we are culturally and linguistically a, a diverse country. Um, my experience has been um, when an individual migrates to a new country, the adjustment um, difficulties that they go through, um, the way of life, learning a new language, um, it can be very uh, stressful and isolating for the individual. Can you go on a little bit more detail and share with us what you mean with those populations and clients that you've worked with? Yeah, so um, I guess this ties into our cultural competency as well. So being able to understand um, what the individual has gone through, uh, understanding their culture, their belief system, and then being able to, I guess, as a psychologist, respect um, respect their culture and be able to provide therapy according to that, yeah. Absolutely. So when you say that, because I know when um, you were talking about the detention centres and you've worked there, and you're talking about culture, obviously in a detention centre there is a high level of a refugee migrant population. What kinds of cultures were you specifically working with? Um, it was a mix of cultures. So there were people from um, Asian backgrounds, there were people from the Middle East, there were people um, who were Islanders, New Zealanders, um, and there were people who were coming from um ex- people that had experienced war and trauma in their country that were trying to migrate into a safer uh, country to grow their family, Um, yes. Because then what would you say when you were working there that you found as maybe a common theme with people who had migrated to Australia of refugee status, what would you say would be main issues that a psychologist sees and that people have to deal with? Yeah, so the main issue I saw was a lack of support from the Australian community. Um, these people were, were discriminated. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty about their visa status. Um, they left their war-torn country um, either by boat or, um, uh, you know, they either came by plane. And some of those stories that we hear, you know, of people, their houses being raided, um, their uh, sisters, mothers, daughters being raped, killed, and then um, fed to animals in front of these people as well. So th- there's quite traumatic experiences they, they go through. And um, the only escape is to save themselves and their life is to jump on a boat and travel for months and months to, you know, to assure at hoping they'll be able to find residency here. I've worked in a similar setting in the space of, you know, there is childhood sexual abuse, there is human trafficking issues. Um, I've had people who have hidden under trucks, so you might just have a delivery truck and the bottom layer is humans and they're staying there for days where they are exposed to absolutely horrific conditions just to get to a new country and I you, you made me think when you were talking it's like people have fled with the clothes on their back sold, sold all their life savings to just have an opportunity at a new country at a new residency but basically because there's a level of fear around their life in their home country when you're working with some of these people maybe share with us what what the challenges are what it is like to engage with them as a psychologist because they've had such extensive trauma in their life. Yeah, and some of these people are um, they're quite educated people. They're either engineers or doctors or they are um, you know, teachers and they've had to 
leave their houses, uh, their income, um, everything just to make sure that their children don't grow up in a war-torn country as well. Before I get into your question, uh, I just recall a client telling me um, they were on a boat and they had been traveling for some time and um, the, you know, the conditions out in sea weren't that great. And um, I, I believe it was one of his family members or his brother had fallen off the boat and they weren't able to go back to rescue him. They just let him in the sea. So just even being able, even witnessing that, the trauma that would cause someone, yeah. I guess um, when you're working with um, a minority group, uh, the things that you need to be mindful of, the different expectations about family involvement. So who makes the decisions? Is it the um, the female member? Is it the male member? Or is it the children uh, or the elders? Who makes the decisions within the family? Um, and also some cultures have a fear of authority figures as well. So there's also a limit to how much they are willing to open up to a psychologist, how much of their life they're willing to share as well. And the stigma of the trauma that they've experienced, sometimes they're not willing to share that with the professional. Sometimes they're unsure of asking questions and they don't know um, if as a psychologist, if you're going actually willing to help them because they've been let down for so long when they come into a country um, where they don't know the language, they don't have a, a support network, and they've been let down by so many people that when um, a psychologist enters into their world, they're quite reluctant yeah, to ask questions. Um, they believe, you know, you're just there to send them back to their war-torn country as well. It's interesting because when I hear you talking, there's obviously a few things in that, but, you know, when we're practising in a culturally safe space and cultural competency, which I'm going to chime in and say that psychologists get that level of training and it's a, a continual upkeep in our professional ethics to have cultural competency practices, you know, we consider things and we'll be assessing when we're meeting a client or a new client what their cultural history is and their background is because often then in what you're saying, you know, some people might have a patriarchal society that they come from. They might then come from a matriarchal society because some of the islander populations have um, more power and control that sits with the female in the community. And you always want to factor that in and consider because, you know, one of the main issues, well, actually, there's quite a few. I might just we'll, we'll list them and you can, we'll chime in and we'll break it down a little bit more. Cause we're basically talking about the extent of someone's trauma, underutilization of mental health services in Australia. But that also starts with considering someone's cultural background because they might have come from a war-torn country where they don't have and they have a level of a mistrust in authority, in the government, in whatever. Do you have an experience, and maybe we'll start there and then we'll break down the rest, but do you have an experience around a client or a situation or even overall your client, they've come from a war-torn country and then they actually mistrust mental health services when they migrate to Australia. Um, yeah, of course. Um, one particular experience that comes to mind is when I was working in the detention centre, there was a big, a large turn turnover of psychologists because of the um, the store the stories that you hear from these clients, the impact that it then has on the individual psychologist, and because there was such a large turnover, the clients were then really reluctant to share their stories because 
they would think you're only going to be there for a few more months and then you'll be gone and the next one will be coming in. And they were even aware of that in that place. Yes, yeah, they were they were aware of it, yeah. I think I believe one had mentioned you won't be here for too long. It's really tough because that ties into our next one. I said we'll break down maybe the trauma aspect because often in psychology people can be a little bit confused and psychologists um, at times have to consider what is the definition of trauma and many things really fall under the level of trauma outside of a pure DSM-5 diagnostic space because it disruptions in someone's development in how they learn and I think what you and I both know when you're working with a level of complex trauma, trauma builds on trauma builds on trauma and if I just use one of your examples in there, you know, the person who may have had their sibling fall off the boat couldn't go back and get them. I imagine they were coming from a country that was unstable, either war-torn, but they could have had an entire history if they're an adult now, childhood, adolescent, young adult years of just trauma layered and peppered in there, um, which makes it so difficult. What do you, how do you um, deal or feel about that kind of level of trauma? Yeah, that's right. Um, and not only that, it, the trauma doesn't end when they arrive in Australia. The trauma continues because then the, these individuals are stuck in detention for five, ten odd years. Some were there for maybe 15 years. They still had uncertainty around their visa um, and were not able to go back to their own country because there was war and they weren't able to find residency within Australia because Australia wasn't um, giving out the visa. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I mean, can you go into a bit more detail about that? I'm kind of fascinated if you say like, you know, people in there and we've seen it all over the news, you and I have seen it in our one-on-one clients, which is so disheartening and we empathise and feel for them. But can you go into detail about, you know, people who have been there for five to 15 years and what actually happens for them in those detention centres that where the trauma continues? Yeah, it's more of a loss of hope. So they uh, lose hope in the country. They lose hope in, you know, do I even have a, you know, they keep thinking about do I even have a future? Will I, if the person is single, it's will, will I ever end up having my own family? If they do have a family back home, uh, they think about how am I going to work if I'm stuck in this detention centre for five or ten years or whatever it may be, how am I going to support my family back at home? Wow, it's such a, I mean, even as you speak, I think we, you and I both, we care so much for our clients and the work that we do we're very passionate about but it's so disheartening isn't it because the journey that they got and went through to just get to a new country for an idea in terms of a better hope for the future can sometimes be diminished if not taken away by the environment that they're in in the detention center because you know i often talk about on a smaller scale visa issues like migrating to australia it is very very difficult and it sits as a background stress psychological stress for people but we're not even talking about post-traumatic stress and um someone's development how that feels so ungrounding to them right yeah that's right so then as a psychologist in that area of work you know, we're talking about a level of underutilization of the mental health services. How would you get clients to engage and actually benefit from 
seeing a psychologist? In this particular workspace, um, we were uh, more focused on risk assessment, so ensuring that individuals were not uh, committing suicide. It is a sensitive topic. However, I think it needs to be discussed because that's that's what this leads to. They don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's uh, day in, day out of the same repeated trauma, even in the detention centre. So um, because it was a male detention centre, uh, you know, men would tend to fight with one another. Um, there would be times when individuals would try and escape the detention centre. Um, I recall a time when a client actually got uh, bed sheets and he tied them all together and tried to climb the fence and trying to escape the centre. And there was another incident where a client had, uh, again, used bed sheets and then he tried to hang himself in his room and had to go to the emergency department and then trying to escape from the emergency d- department just to be able to um, get out of the detention centre. But, again, uh, they all end up coming back. Wow. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting to hear these experiences because we know that it happens, but it's really disheartening and sometimes it can be a systemic issue because it almost feels like it's a vicious cycle of negative reinforcement of where as well where you know we need in our professional services to have a lot of trust transparency and a really honest connection with someone so that they can hold the idea and see that there is actually a professional supportive network around them but I almost hear when you're speaking that these clients are so desperate that Obviously, as you and I both know, the only way out or a way to escape and protect themselves from their pain is suicide. Yeah, that's right. And um, allowing the clients or um, helping the clients have a glimpse of hope is quite difficult because they're, they're in there day in, day out, whereas I, at the end of the day, I grab my bag and come home. You know, I know that there is uh, hope on the outside, but they don't really see that because uh, they've been in that centre for such a long period of time, yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I get it. So how would you? I mean, I know part of our work sometimes is being able to see and find the hope for the future, for hope for something different, that positive belief that people still have and they have it. It's often just very much dimmed, especially in a really depressive space or a um, loss of identity space. How would you develop that or talk to that with clients and keep them, I guess, for lack of a better analogy, but on track and in the right lane so that they could take care of themselves. It's hard because they, they've already lost hope and it's hard to seed that back into someone unless they were to receive a good news from a lawyer that, you know, their case will be going to court, then they would get really excited and you can really see in their eyes that, okay, maybe this time I have a chance at a better life. Um, or, you know, if the prime minister was to change, they would wait to hear whether they're going to implement new things about, uh, ref- you know, refugee status and things like that. Yeah. Wow. It's so powerful, isn't it? Like, you know, you're truly highlighting a systemic issue, which, you know, I've seen in family violence in my area of work and homelessness as well, but it's like you're truly highlighting issues where it really is a top-down issue of what happened in politics and what happened there. These people are holding on to the idea that something better will come along I'm going to ask you a bit of a hard question and this is any psychologist's worst nightmare because it's something that we, we, we wish never happens but were you then around clients and people that you saw suicide 
Yes, I was around uh, people that would sort out to suicide. However, because they were in such a confined space, there were GPs, nurses, security guards, 24 hours around the clock that they would implement, you know, they would go in and, you know, uh, get the person into an emergency room to stop that from happening. How did you manage it all working in that space Um, if that's the crisis point that, a lot of your clients were at? Yeah, it was really tough working in that space. Um, it was a real eye-opener even into my own life thinking, well, I'm so uh, lucky to have the life that I have. I can't imagine what how I would feel going through what these individuals have gone through and would I even make it this far? So they have... And you're talking about educated professionals, like you were saying before, like doctors, lawyers. Yeah, that's right. Um, And, you know, I don't think I would have managed to make it this far or how far they've come. Um, You know, they can't think of the word, like they're domineering, they've got a lot of passion, they don't give up hope, Um, they're fighting for survival. They're tenacious in the survival, but that's that survival mode that we know because in the psychology and the work that we do, they are no longer in that window of tolerance or in a space that they're able to regulate self-soothe. They're sitting in a crisis survival mode that is a hyper-arousal state, that is a state that basically keeps them functioning to live. But the problem with that and that I hear when you're saying they've been in the detention centre for, what, 5 to 15 years, this is where the brain and the neuroplasticity kind of changes because... If someone sits in that space of survival mode and they're in a detention centre, let's say they go to the lower end, this is not even factoring in their previous trauma, for five years they essentially are custom and climatised to being in survival that in our work as psychologists and we're doing longer-term work, it's really tricky for them to self-regulate, to soothe, to calm themselves and get in a space where they can actually feel safe, mm. secure, relaxed, right? Yeah, that's right. So while we talk about this space, it's interesting because, you know, cultural competency is a growing space in our world, especially in our professional practice. How would you describe culture and things that come to your mind when you're working with somebody with a cultural background? The way I describe culture is patterns that have been learned and shared uh, amongst generations. That, that's what I think culture is. Um, if I was to talk about, you know, if I was to move away from the detention centre, because that's really tier one, high, uh, like, um, there's a lot of post-traumatic stress uh, disorder, people with post-traumatic stress disorders there. It's extreme, like the detention centre are ex- really extreme examples. But if I was to bring it to, I guess, um, the general Australian population, um, if, let's say, a client was to present from the Muslim culture and there was a psychologist that wasn't really familiar and um, the client was expressing to them, um, I'm not getting along with my mother maybe, you know, um, there's I have a lot of responsibilities on my plate, uh, maybe I'm not having, you know, I'm not able to have my own space um, and things like that. Um, if the psychologist was there suggesting them putting boundaries or moving out of home, that really doesn't work for that type of individuals because um, in the Muslim culture, generally um, you only move out of home if you're married or if you're going to study abroad or if, for example, um, you know, 
in your coffin pretty much. So it's either marriage or you leave if you're married or if you've died, the family home. So if someone doesn't understand that, then the strategies and things that you're trying to implement does not work for that person. And then you lose your um, therapeutic relationship with that client. Totally. That's such an important point. What you're highlighting is kind of you know, it's around what we're talking about with the psychology, really connecting with someone, someone's story, someone's narrative, their history, their culture. But you have to have a really thorough understanding of someone's belief systems to actually have a level of cultural competency, you know, understanding the Muslim community, what it means for them to move out, marriage, relationships, one partner. There are traditions that stand the test of time in many cultures, you know. Um, I often talk about one's whether it's the way cultures manage death and there's traditions and also spiritual beliefs that's very high in the Indigenous community. And, you know, one of the things that we always look at if people have a level of a spiritual belief that maybe seem a little bit bizarre or different to a professional, that doesn't mean it's a psychotic episode. That doesn't mean it's a delusion. We really have to critically analyse and have a look at what is their belief system and how does it work for someone because... It might just be the religious aspect, the belief system. And I think when we come back full circle to what is culture, I entirely agree with you because sometimes it is a belief and values around a subset, a group of people, um, a smaller community kind of based thing. But it's understanding then what that means to them. And for us, you know, non-judgmental, because sometimes it's worth its weight in gold even as a protective factor for a lot of a lot of our clients. Yeah, that's right. Even um, as you were talking, it's just coming to my mind. Even with some cultures, having a diagnosis of a certain disorder is not acceptable either. So whether it be schizophrenia, a learning disorder, um, you know, ADHD or a personality disorder, you know, whatever it may be, it's not accepted. And the way they look at it is it's either... Um, a ghost that's taken over their body. They can do religious, um, uh, religious prayers, uh, to fix that person, whereas they don't accept the psychology uh, behind it. So when you say it's not accepted, can you go into detail? Let's say, like, even in your experience, it's if you gave someone a diagnosis in a cognitive space or a diagnosis, um, can you talk us through? maybe them not accepting it. And I also imagine when you're talking about family members or community, and I'm thinking actually more community, because remember cultures are so vast and who is included in that um, and they're praying for them. Do you have more to say in that space on your experience? Yeah, um, especially working with with children and um, I was going out to – you know, uh, rural Victorian schools as well as schools in the metropolitan area. So I saw quite a different, uh, quite a range of uh, individual or parents. Um, either there was parents that were really excited to get the, get a diagnosis for their child so that way they know how to support their child and uh, depending on the disorder that they were diagnosed with, 
And there was other parents that either the mum was uh, willing to have a diagnosis so they could better support, but the father was against the um, the diagnosis, um, and or there was parents that were really uh, not accepting of it and thinking that the school was attacking them or picking on their child. Um, yeah, so these were the uh, you know scenarios that I was facing, um, you know, day in day out. Yeah, right. So what would you do in those scenarios? You know, obviously we're doing professional practice right what would you do yeah yeah that's right so w- what i would do is if the parents were uh unwilling to accept a diagnosis i'll try and explain to them that uh this diagnosis is to help their child we're trying to help them uh reduce the gap between them and their peers uh when they do uh, get older uh they are then able to have job opportunities as psychologists we do formalize assessments to be able to identify and hone in what the presentation is what the issues are to then be able to provide them support and appropriate recommendations. And if you're working with a child, like you're making me think of, let's say someone with an impairment with ADHD that you may have done, where you can highlight A, how they came to be, where the disruptions are, but then there's recommendations around behavior management. Then there's ways that we can suggest how they can actually use their working memory better and create structure for them. And if they are someone who doesn't then respond to written instructions, they might then be better at verbal instructions or the other way around. And these recommendations are so valuable, but I hear you as well in that a lot of our work, if you're working with a child outside of just including cultural competency in there, you essentially have to educate a lot of what happens with the parents and provide sound information to them about it all. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, going uh, talk when I was doing IQ assessments, talking to the parents about their the child's strengths and weaknesses and using their strengths to um, aid them in their learning within the classroom settings. If you're talking about people that you've worked with from a cultural culturally diverse background, and I know um, you are a Turkish-speaking psychologist as well, How have you found that speaking in obviously your first language but also doing it in a psychology space? How have you found that? I found it quite challenging because there's some words such as depression and anxiety that does not exist within the Turkish language. So being able to explain certain diagnoses or to explain uh, uh, individuals um you know their symptoms or why they're feeling a certain way it, it was quite challenging because some of the words don't exist that says to me you're you're thinking at a pace where you're trying to describe symptoms a little bit more which we all commonly do because if we're talking about something like depression we all know what falls under the criteria let's say in a clinical diagnostic space of what depression is but then if you're using it in a in turkish language you're then trying to describe what it is and create like a reality-based situation where the client can actually understand, right? Right. And if the client doesn't understand, you have to find other forms to, um, you know, other ways to explain it until they do understand their diagnoses. Wow. It is tricky, isn't it? Language is, again, another layer in culture. And it's really interesting because you're making me think about which is a, a smaller niche, again, in psychology, but working with interpreters. Yeah. Have you ever had that experience working with interpreters or were you then assigned clients with that Turkish background if they couldn't then speak English that well? Yeah, I've worked with interpreters and it's quite challenging to work with interpreters because sometimes um, the client prefers to 
talk to uh, individ- uh, the professional in their own language or they're happy to have an interpreter present as well. Uh, with the interpreter, the client is... Uh, you know, worried about does this interpreter know who I am? Do they, do they have a connection to my family? Are they then going to spread my issue within the community? Because we have such a, a limit of interpreters in certain types of languages as well. When I was, you know, initially starting out working with interpreters, and it's really tricky because you have to set really strong and firm professional practices with the interpreter because they don't necessarily follow the exact same processes as we do in terms of ethics and legal in as a psychologist, because sometimes triangulation happens. And that basically means if an interpreter steers away from what is being said, then they can almost hijack the therapy session and therapeutic session. The safest way we eventually did it in a community health setting was actually using an interpreter via the phone. Yes, both of us might have been leaning in and leaning into a phone, but really an interpreter would only then interpret exactly what I had asked. And also we're talking about language. I think you also know we have to keep sentences and questions really concise. The other thing that we actually, and I've had experiences probably similar to yourself, where the interpreter is a third person in the room, which is where you have to then monitor that triangulation. And the experience I was talking about was, which actually overflows into the cultural side that we're talking about, because we're talking about minority groups that know each other. They're very clicky. They've got a community around them and people know each other. And I had a situation once where the interpreter that was brought in actually knew the client or extended of what um the issues were and the issues that we're working with were family violence and homelessness but if they are a part of the community that almost essentially has to be a session end because it then is no longer a safe place for the client and the psychologist has to make those decisions because remember an interpreter's job is purely to interpret the language that we are saying without having another presence, which is where that blank canvas has to stay in that space. And I'm just wondering if you had similar experiences yourself. Yeah, um, so I've had similar experiences where I, if I've used for an interpreter, interpreters, and this one really sticks out to me and I'm still shocked about it, the interpreter, um, I think he was cooking in the background. He was doing something. and Oh, uh, I've had that too. Yes. <laughs> you could hear the pots and pans banging and um, every time I'd stop my therapy and check with the, in with the interpreter, um, you know, are you... And oh, I imagine this was on the phone, right? Yeah, this was on the phone, yeah. I, I would ask him, you know, are you in a quiet space? Can you, you know, just focus on our session? And he would answer, yes, I'm in a quiet space, but then continue what he w- needed to do. Um, I've had instances where I would explain something um, to the client, hoping the interpreter does the interpreting however it would either be a one word or two word sentence and that it wouldn't you know reflect what I was saying to the um the client as well I've had similar experiences myself you know um people with children in the background and crying and we never start a session without checking if the interpreter is in a safe space and quiet place and I will add in there because you and I have both worked with great interpreters, right? And when you find the good ones, you keep them and you keep them on call because I know the service that we were working with was graded. You know, you would have a level one, level two, level three. Level three would essentially be someone who was skilled in counselling services. And I think it's such a slippery slope because 
us as psychologists in professional ethics, we have to uphold that for whatever is in the client's best interest. And that's where it gets slippery slope because we don't then know for certain what a third person or an interpreter will bring into the session. And then often when that would happen, I don't know about yourself, but I just had to end the session because what it was not fair on the client. Yes, sometimes, as you mentioned, it's quite hard, difficult to find uh, a good interpreter. And then if that interpreter doesn't have experience within uh, counselling, that also makes it quite difficult. And there's also limitations to the number of interpreters that speak a certain language. So what do you mean by that? Sorry, when you say like number of interpreters. So if you're looking for like a really... like a really specific language it's hard to find is that what you mean yeah sometimes yeah it is hard to find and then hoping that interpreter has the counseling background as well then that's even um another difficulty on top of that absolutely and i because uh, i've worked in the government and the community health setting and we use them unfortunately in that crisis space we essentially have to use them however in our private practice work that you and I have, I essentially opted, I opt not to use them. And unfortunately, unfortunately, we don't have to technically use them as much because as psychologists, we try to safeguard that space, safe space, therapeutic space very well. And there's just many considerations that people may not be aware that we have to do and consider to maintain cultural competency, but then working in the migrant refugee population and there's so much more to it, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I want to go into a bit more detail because I know you and I both have that experience around transgenerational trauma. I, uh, My mind is going to a space around war-torn countries, um, child sexual abuse, slavery, human trafficking. You know, I've had many instances with child sexual abuse, that it's very common for a child to be sold to an adult man for any kind of purposes. Um, It's culturally accepted. Not saying it's morally righteous, but it's ingrained and embedded in their culture, which is generational as well. What did you find were issues that were that level of transgenerational trauma? And I'm just before I ask you and you're going to answer, I'm going to highlight. Obviously, we know one in Australia with our Indigenous community around the stolen generation and institutionalised abuse that was a systemic issue top down. What would you say is that level of recursive transgenerational trauma that maybe you saw? Yeah, the uh, the transgenerational trauma that I saw, and it still continues, the trauma doesn't stop, Um, you know, it being culturally accepted for children to marry older men, uh, you know, that still continues in today's today's society. Um, And for sexual pleasure and purpose, right? Yeah. Um, There's also, um, I've come across clients that were raped and because within their culture, bringing shame onto the family, either you um, you die or uh, you married a person that's raped you and then you have a child from that incident as well and then the mother then struggles to take ownership of their child or the person that's raped them already has a first wife and then you're the second wife coming into that dynamic or that relationship and it still continues today. Yes, multiple wives and then I've had situations where women in depends on what cultural background 
elements of the slavery around, you know, kneeling at a bathroom door while the male goes to the toilet. And it's that level of cultural background that we are considering that then infiltrates someone's identity and how they are, that we're then trying to ground themselves and piece it all back together in a way that they can become healthy. You know, we're talking about some of those traumatic spaces. And I am curious because you mentioned something about the Muslim community before. Have you ever had experiences around, you know, you're talking about rape and then a child of that partnership. Have you had experiences in terms of the community relational abuse where they're then rejecting someone because they've got a child there or something like that? And I'll give you my little example. It's where I've had previous instances before where if you had a child and then it was family violence and there's divorce and separation, the child automatically goes to the male's family, irregardless if it was the male and the father of the child themselves, it automatically goes to the male's family above the mother. Have you had those kind of experiences of culture play a part in some of your work? Yeah, um, I've had some experiences uh, quite similar, but, um, you know, I just want to highlight that people tend to confuse the culture and religion uh, and believe that some of these things that happen, like child marriages, uh, women being slaves to their husband, um, they think it's part of the religion when, when it's not. It's part of the culture. Yeah, there's been instances where the male has been praised for taking ownership of the person that they ended up raping or, you know, taking um, or for having a second wife. Um, You know, sometimes within a culture, other men praise that individual and they think they're doing the right thing. I love that clarification because I think it's so important. The religion is special, it's sacred, it's traditional, right? but it doesn't then enforce or implement essentially culture, but it's also behaviours embedded in society that are archaic based on really outdated ways. You know, I could even say that the same thing happens in our justice system that is embedded in older ways that maybe hasn't necessarily caught up into the modern day that we live. And if we even look at Australia as a whole, we have the same kind of issue around our own traumas in how we have, you know, treated the Indigenous community and then it's somewhat, well, it was, let's say, accepted as a norm, but we're trying to write that and educate people as we progress further. So I get I get what you're saying. It's a cultural thing, but that then doesn't mean religion approves of negative forms of behaviour, right? That's right. And that goes into not just uh, the um, Muslim religion, but also there's Christianity, you know, Judaism or, you know, all religions as well. I actually want to tell you a personal experience that I had uh, while growing up. So I grew up in Adelaide and I was there during uh, the 9-11 bombings. So so while I was growing up in Adelaide, that's the 9-11 bombings. Uh, had happened and um back then again there was not much community uh that was turkish or muslim so people were just not uh, learning about islam and they were learning about the muslim community through that incident and i recall a time i went to the shopping center with my mom we were in the car park and my mom she wears the hijab and a man walking past spat on her. And that was the first time, yeah, that was the first time I realised, um, you know, we're different. There, there is a, a 
a, a cultural di- difference here. It's either you're one of them or you're one of us. So there was always that, you know, and, and it happens in today's society and it still continues to happen, yeah. Oh, it makes me so sad and I feel for you and your mom and anything that happens in our culture and the community because at the end of the day, you know that we both are passionate about this space because everyone and anyone is a human being first and foremost, right? Yeah. And it's interesting that you raised that and I feel for you because you and I are just so passionate about this. We've got our cultural background. You know, I've got the Asian background. You have your own as well. And it's interesting because in the last couple of years, a concept has come about or at least more prevalent and more spoken about, which is casual racism. And it was really interesting because I was watching and reading and um, looking into some of the research around it. And it's where, you know, let's say that instance with your mum could have happened, that is outwardly and openly a negative form of behaviour to show a level of racism or lack of understanding. But it's where we've grown up because you and I were, well, I'm Australian born and I've grown up predominantly well, all the time of my life here, but then we've learned to accept comments and things about our race and our background without thinking twice about it um, as a casual comment and they are microaggressions from people and obviously we want to seek to understand why someone feels the need to say that. But, you know, I would often get something like, um Oh, you know, if I was Asian background at school, and I remember vividly in high school when we would have our Asian students who maybe had difficulties speaking English, and then I have clear, proficient English like anyone else, and I would have people say to me in school and friends, friends, I know they didn't mean it, but they were undereducated on the issue, but, oh, you're not like them. Hmm. And think about the confusion and the construct in someone's mind as you're developing and how you're trying to develop an identity. And you and I know human brain stops developing at 25 years of age, right? And we're trying to find that level of sense of self-identity. But as a, as a, a teenager, you sort of think, what do you mean I'm not like them? I physically look like them. I have the same facial features and cultural background, but I'm different and I'm supposedly different because I'm accepted in a predominantly Australian Caucasian background. And I think they are the important factors that we're talking about on a smaller layer that we also need to consider. And it's an important topic to talk about because I still work with a lot of those things with a lot of my clients today. Yeah, that's right. I'm similar. uh, I've had similar experiences as well. You know, I was born and bred in Australia. I haven't really travelled much overseas. I haven't lived overseas or, um, you know, hearing comments such as go back to your own country, you don't belong in Australia, you know, uh, you know, I was born here, uh, you know, so it's just funny to when you hear those comments, you know, Australia is my country, uh, you know, so where where am I meant to go? (laughs) It's interesting because even you and I as professionals and psychologists and we've had our years of experience, you know, and I always talk about this with trauma and people, not that they were traumatising to us because we had a level of um, protective factors that help us work through in a grounded support community that we can actually understand it in an educational space and a um, a healthy space, but we still remember those things. And I love this conversation because, It's so important in our work, how we connect with people, how we can actually practice in a professional space that is transparent, but truly understanding someone as a human being, especially when we're doing a level of psychopathology, diagnosing, assessing, giving 
the symptoms and information about their mental health, which actually brings me to the next part that I wanted us to talk about, because there are beautiful things that happen in culture. There are beautiful things that happen with tradition. And I, we call them in psychology as our little psychology jargon as protective factors. What did you find were the protective factors that help migrant refugees, help someone with a culturally diverse background? I'm also going to add in there, culturally diverse is sexuality, gender as well. We work with a lot of those populations where things can be more fluid, open, essentially people treated as human beings. What were some of the protective factors that you thought helped in a culturally diverse community? Yeah, um, what I believe helped was having a community, having a sense of belonging, having people that understand them, accept them, having or being in a country where different types of celebrate the different uh, celebrations are celebrated. For example, um, you know, we, even with the Chinese New Year, we we celebrate that here in Australia. This is my favourite. <laughs> Chinese New Year is my favourite, but I love it because actually it's quite open to, as a side note, I love Chinese New Year because in Australia anyway, we are very much a melting pot of culture and I find that the general population love it regardless of background. Um, people are open because there's a level of togetherness. Yeah, that's right. It, it's the togetherness. So people um, then understanding the culture of that individual and um, wanting to experience it as well. Yeah, which creates a level of understanding, right? And as you and I know, we look at protective factors where a supportive network, a connectedness in a social identity space, having a community around you are all factors that mitigate risk, social isolation, but it also reinforces this healthy level of identity that you have in society. What other things do you feel where they can then integrate Australian culture, once they've adopted Australian culture, they sort of have a level of security in that once they've got their visa. That's the thing. Even in the detention centre, if it was all about visa, when am I getting my visa? Can you help me get my visa? Um, you know, what's your role in supporting me to get my visa? And, you know, um, psycho, you know, then psychoeducating them in, in what is the psychologist's role? Um, where, you know, where they're on a more emotional support rather than supporting them on, you know, the more legal side. Yeah. So when you're talking about the visa and we talk about it as a protective factor, right? You mean that once they got a secure visa status or a residential status in Australia, what would you see be the shift and change in a lot of your clients? Yeah, the shift and change in my clients were, you know, they were excited to be a part of the Australian community. They were excited to experience Australia. They were excited to now be able to find employment and then support their family back in their own um, country of origin. Yeah, it's so important. And that's actually, um, you mentioned in there, like when they come to Australia, when they feel like they have that sense of belonging that then encourages that level of acculturation where they can almost adopt a new identity and integrate their culture as well as Australian culture and that is a healthier space for people who can adapt, be psychologically flexible but most often in what we're talking about in a lot of these really crisis situations gives people a level of safety, security and protection, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And all these, uh, the individuals in the detention center, that's all they're seeking safety, security, and a sense of belonging as well. Because, uh, at the moment, the, the individuals in the detention center or the detainees, they, 
they don't have security that they, they don't belong anywhere. Their own country doesn't accept them. Australia, um, you know, they, there's the visa issues going on there. So they actually have no country. So where, where do they belong then? Yeah. Well, you know, when I hear you and I speak, I hear us as psychologists, we are passionate and compassionate about this space so that people can have an opportunity for support, an opportunity for better, an opportunity to do it differently. And, you know, even uh, I'm proud of our profession in at least talking about cultural competency. It's a part of our profession to be registered, but also to create and provide cultural safety from a genuine space with our clients. And um, even in the way we formally assess and do formalised psychological assessments with clients, we're moving in a direction where we are norming our psychological assessments on cultural communities because they were obviously back in the day dated and normed on data and re- evidence-based research on a minority, well, uh, on a on a larger scale, sorry, population, not the minority population. So a lot of our formalised assessment for a cognitive assessment, let's say, are now being considered and normed off the Indigenous population in Australia so that we're not just pulling from a battery of formalised assessments and just doing a one-size-fits-all kind of application where considerate of individual differences. So I hear how you and I are very passionate about this space. Yeah, and I think it need, there needs to be more awareness around it. Um, yeah, not many people uh, consider cultural differences or... Um, th- individuals that are migrants or the children of migrant parents as well. So um, as you mentioned, the generational trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation, um, you know, the psycho- you know, psychologists or allied health professionals, uh, you know, yeah, everyone needs to become a, a little bit more aware of this topic too. Absolutely. And I'm always going to add in there because I know we're talking about culture and we were focusing on a subset of culturally diverse issues, but it always includes sexuality and gender as well, which we very much consider, which we can save for a later date. At the end of each episode with a guest on my podcast, we do a few Ethos Live questions, sort of like more a rapid fire question and say what comes to your mind. If you could share a message with the migrant refugee population or the culturally diverse population around utilising mental health services and seeing a psychologist, what message would you share with them? Rachel, that's it's really difficult to answer in one word or a sentence, but what I would say to the uh, culturally diverse and the minority groups is utilise psychologists. We're here to support you, um, you know, on an emotional level, help you build your resilience, um, I think immigrants and uh, the smaller population don't realise how strong and resilient they are and how those qualities can then um, tra- uh, transfer within the Australian community. You know, uh, we need you here because there's a lot from us, uh, from you, that we can learn as well. As a psychologist, what makes you passionate about working with culturally diverse clients and practising in a culturally safe space? Um, I think growing up in um, a community where culture wasn't accepted um, and being different wasn't accepted, 
really kick-started my passion into helping other individuals feel accepted within a community or to feel understood, to, um, you know, uh, to be able to share their similarities. You know, um, as we mentioned before, we are all human. We might have different backgrounds, but we all want are seeking the same support and acceptance within a, a country that we uh, want to find residence in. Yeah. To be seen, to be heard, to be valued. What psychological skill do you use as a psychologist on a daily basis to keep yourself grounded? Uh, I would say um, empathy. If I was to go into the why, um, realising what other people have gone through, their traumas, their experiences, and um, you know, having a sense of empathy towards them. I like what you're saying there, though, because the reality is as Psychologists, yes, we empathise, but there's that level of compassion that we aim to maintain so that we see our clients for who they are as a human being, as a whole human being, not just one layer. Um, And that's the beauty in our work. We really get to do a deep dive. Thank you so much for being a guest on Life in the Cyclone podcast and it's been an absolutely fun, enjoyable but insightful conversation with you, Sue. Uh, Thank you for having me, Rachel. Um, You know, I was really excited about this topic and um, even more excited to be on the podcast. So, yeah, uh, thanks for having me again. Amazing. Let's build some awareness around cultural competency and cultural safety. If you'd like to access our team of psychologists for professional mental health support, please visit www.ethospsychology.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to Life in the Cyclone on your favourite podcast listing platform to better understand psychology today.